0: Welcome to the North Brevard Church of Christ podcast. This recording is a session from the Widowhood Workshop presented by Dean Miller. Thanksgiving weekend, the late 1980s, we were down visiting with my mother and my father and my wife's mother and my wife's father, which was about 50 minutes away from where we lived in Hartville, Ohio. We decided on that weekend to try to milk it for all that we possibly could. And so we stayed as long as we could on Saturday night and we left, headed back home, because that's what a preacher has to do on Saturday night after he's been away for the weekend. It was a very, very dark and clouded kind of a night, and the rain was just drizzling rain. We were headed north on uh, Route 43 in Northeast Ohio, and there was a car that had been at the wedding of a Mennonite couple in Hartville Ohio and this older gentleman older retired gentleman and his wife were attending that wedding and he was headed home they were headed east and I was headed north and when we got to an intersection on State Route 43 he missed the stop sign and I had the right-of-way headed north. We were in a 1989 Pontiac Bonneville, four-door sedan, and Mr. and Mrs. Burford were in a 1970-something powder blue Ford Pinto. To this day, I can still see that car. It's emblazoned in my mind. We were going 45 miles an hour, Our three young daughters were in the back of the car, my wife was on the passenger side, and I was at the driver's seat. I wish Mr. Burford had not missed that stop sign. So at 45 miles an hour, I hit that powder blue 1970-something Ford Pinto. Fortunately, my children were all right, and they were escorted back to Hartville Ohio with a family my wife and I had to go to the hospital but more importantly that night Mrs. Burford passed away at Alliance Community Hospital I think the worst time in my life up to that point was setting my young children down that Sunday morning and explaining to them that the car that their father was driving in the car that they were in, was involved in this accident and Mrs. Burford died. I hated having to tell them that story. I hated how it made me feel. My wife was uh, injured on crutches for a while. I was not really that severely in- injured. Of course that Saturday night I called the elders and explained to them that There was going to have to be something done because i wasn't up to preaching i did ask them though i said please let me come before the assembly is dismissed because i want to explain to them about what happened because i knew how that that whole event and that news was going to be fresh meat for the media in that area you see he was a very well-known mennonite preacher in northeast ohio the vast majority of mennonites in eastern Ohio, West Virginia, or western Pennsylvania would have known Mr. Burford. And when you have a Mennonite preacher and then a preacher from the Hartville Church of Christ have an accident at that particular location that was noted for a danger zone, I knew what was going to happen. It was going to be all over the news for days. I was overwhelmed. I was able to attend Mrs. Burford's memorial service and it was in a room larger than this room. You could not have put all the people who came to her memorial service in this room. It was filled especially with Mennonite people because they were a beloved couple amongst those folks. During the course of the memorial service, Mr. Burford cited me about halfway back in the middle. And he asked me to stand. He identified me. And then he said, I want. You to know how thankful I am for your help in getting my wife to heaven. And I was overwhelmed. I didn't know how to respond to that. I went to. The court, it was vehicular manslaughter, his wife, and that was his charge. So I went to the courtroom and it was again filled with Mennonite people. I loved how supportive that they were of him during a terrible time in his life. And that too was overwhelming. But you see, sometimes that's the way that life is. Sometimes it's just overwhelming. When our youngest daughter was 10 years old, she was diagnosed with a condition that was typically diagnosed in little babies before they're even dismissed from the hospital by the doctor who does the exam at the hospital, or a condition that is often, I was told, diagnosed in older people at nursing homes. She had a a constriction or a restriction in a cerebral aqueduct. I'd never heard of such a thing but she had one and what had happened was there was a collection of brain fluid there that was pushing her brain up against her skull and she was for a great long time asymptomatic she had no symptoms of there being a neurological issue but her brain was being pressed up against the skull and between the brain and the skull, there's fluid there, but her brain was being pushed up against that skull. There was only one pediatric neurosurgeon. I didn't even know there were pediatric neurosurgeons. I just thought everyone was a neurosurgeon or not a neurosurgeon, but there's a specialty within a specialty, and he was the only pediatric neurosurgeon, Dr. Mapstone. Between Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and Detroit, Michigan, there was only one. If you don't know anything about that particular area of our country, it's densely populated, but there was only one pediatric neurosurgeon there. We had to take our daughter up there to Timothy Mapstone, and he explained that that they were going to have to do surgery. That summer, she had five brain surgeries. When she was at the Rainbow Baby and Children's Hospital, which is a part of the University Hospitals of Cleveland in Cleveland, Ohio, she was there for 33 days. I remember between one of those surgeries and another one that we left our youngest 10-year-old daughter in the pre-surgical area and we were walking to the family area and I remember my wife crying and saying, I never want to walk through this hallway again. And you know, within 48 hours, we were walking through that hallway again. It was like nothing could go right and everything was going wrong. It was especially intimidating when Dr. Timothy Mapstone came in one day in the PICU, the pediatric intensive care unit. And he proceeded to explain that neurosurgeons are often the bearers of bad news. That was exactly how he said it. That wasn't very comforting. During those 33 days, there was a great deal of that time when our daughter was unresponsive, totally non-responsive. My wife was there at her side every single day Every hour of every day. It was exhausting and it was overwhelming. One day, when my wife was in her room, Ruth Ann bent on a carrot, a raw carrot. You know the sound that that makes whenever you bite on a raw carrot and then you chew that raw carrot? These words came from our youngest daughter who had been in a comatose like state for days. What is that sound? She said. And that was when we knew that she was coming back to us. But when she came back to us, she couldn't feed herself. She couldn't walk. She had to relearn everything. She had months and months of physical and occupational therapy at Rainbow Baby and Children's Hospital. If you saw her now, you would never know that she had been through such a traumatic time in her life. Boy, that was an overwhelming phase in the life of our family. When my wife was in her early 50s, she was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. That's not considered early onset by the statistical people who evaluate these things, just a little past early onset. I really didn't know that there was anything wrong with her, but now looking back, I now know that the first indication that she had, that she had Parkinson's disease, was her long showers. I remember sitting in the bed and reading while she would take a shower, and it dawned on me on a few occasions, man, that water's running a long time. But then I just thought, well, she's a woman, that's the way women are, and I never thought too much about it. But she had bradykinesia, as a symptom of her Parkinson's disease, which basically just means she lived in a slow motion world. It would take her forever to take a shower, but I didn't know anything about bradykinesia. The only thing I knew about Parkinson's disease was the tremors. I didn't have a clue. She didn't and I didn't. Neither one of us had a clue about what we were going to experience for the next eight and a half years. As she declined very rapidly, With this condition to the point where she couldn't do anything. Everything had to be done for her. I remember during the caregiving phase of that experience. That there were times I had to remove myself from her presence. And I would run upstairs to the bathroom. And I would pray a three word prayer. Because it's the only thing I could think of. Lord help me. I was exhausted, I was fearful, I was at my wit's end. I thought I was going to snap. It's the only phase in my life where I ever went back to my high school weight of 185. Caregiving can be a real challenge. If you know anybody who presently is caregiving, I would really encourage you to spend some time with them And find out what you can do to be of help to them, because I'll guarantee you they're stressed. That is one of the most difficult things in life to do, to be a caregiver. Well, on Christmas morning of 2013, at 9.40 in the morning, along with my oldest daughter, we watched her draw her last breath. Boy, life can be hard sometimes. Life can be really, really hard. Life can bite and sometimes it takes a chunk out of your heart and it's such a painful thing to just breathe and realize that you've got to keep breathing. Well, what all of that did was it challenged me to look into this whole business of what we experience When we experience hard times and what goes on with us when we are overwhelmed by our experiences and there are a lot of things in our lives that can cause us to feel overwhelmed but maybe before we look at what some of those are maybe it would be good for us to look at the idea the concept i looked in dictionaries and different kinds of sources both on the internet as well as the hard copy books for a definition of Overwhelmed, And I really couldn't find one that was satisfying. But I found these two synonyms that I think do really communicate that concept. When we're overwhelmed, it's like being submerged. It's like just being plunged underneath the negative circumstances of your life. And you know, when you're submerged and you're submerged too long, that's scary. It's frightening. It's hard to deal with. This other word, I think, even communicates it better. When we're overwhelmed, we are feeling crushed. We're pressed to the extent of we're feeling crushed by those circumstances. And that's what burdens can do to us. Burdens can be so heavy as we're bearing them that we can just feel the weight of that burden increasing in a very gradual sort of way in our life to the point where it's really difficult just to take another step in your life. And that's the way life can be sometimes it can be because of our financial strain sometimes it can be because of a diagnosis that's health related sometimes it can be because of a severe weather event a tornado that comes and takes your home away sometimes it can be the loss of a child a grandchild a spouse there are all kinds of things in our life that can rattle our cage to the point where That can cause us to just after a while feel overwhelmed by what we're experiencing in our life. We're going to experience times in our life when we're going to be overwhelmed. It's just a given. That's the way it is in this world. We're not in paradise. It's just like Dorothy told Toto. You know, we're not in Kansas anymore. This is not the Garden of Eden. This can be a very, very difficult life to live. So when you're experiencing these circumstances that are so overwhelming in your life. How should we react to that? What should we do? What would be good for us to do? Let me suggest to you that we do what David did, that we read about in Psalm 31. There is no doubt in my mind, but that when David wrote this Psalm, he was overwhelmed in his life. Now, I know that because look at several verses here in Psalm 31. Take, for instance, starting at verse 9. Watch or listen carefully to how he describes what he's going through. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I'm in trouble. My eye wastes away with grief. Yes, my soul and my body, for my life is spent with grief and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. I am a reproach among all my enemies." but especially among my neighbors. I'm repulsive to my acquaintances. Those who see me outside flee from me. I am forgotten. Like a dead man out of mind, I'm like a broken vessel. For I hear the slander of many. Fear is on every side. While they take counsel against me, they scheme to take away my life. Now, David had a really rich, full life. You know, a shepherd boy tending to the sheep. A king, but then also the object of the jealousy of Saul. And at one point in his life was being tracked down like he was some sort of a rabid dog. The rebellion and betrayal of his own son, Absalom. There were all kinds of things that David experienced in his life. And sometimes there are psalms that you can almost pin to a certain time or phase in his life. I don't know exactly what was going on in David's life at this point. But one thing I know, this old boy was really struggling in his life. Look at the words that he uses in this psalm. Look at verse 7, the word trouble. Verse 7, the word adversities. At verse 9, again the word trouble. In verse 11, the word reproach. In verse 13, the word slander. At the end of verse 13, he says, they're scheming against me. And then in verse 15, he uses the word persecute. They are persecuting me. He's in a very, very difficult time in his life. And look at the kinds of ways that he describes it poetically. My eyes waste away with grief. Verse 9. That's some serious crying. That is really some serious, genuine crying. Look at the end of verse 10. My bones waste away. Then look at how he mentions here that he's repulsive in verse 11. Repulsive to my acquaintances. Those who see me flee from me. Then look at verse 12, really graphic. I'm like a dead man, out of mind, I am like a broken vessel." David is overwhelmed. What should we do when we are experiencing a time in our life when we may feel very similar to how David describes here in this psalm? Number one, trust God. Look at this psalm and how frequently he really emphasizes trusting the Lord. Look at how the psalm starts in verse 1. In you, O Lord, I put my trust. Drop down to verse 6. I've hated those who regard useless idols, but I trust in the Lord. Then look at verse 14. But as for me, I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Deliver me from the hand of my enemies. Earlier in this psalm, He uses a phrase very similar to what Jesus said on the cross. One of the more familiar things that we remember Jesus saying of the seven that he said at the cross. Look here at verse five. Into your hand I commit my spirit. What does it mean to trust? Well, let me give a couple of examples if you don't do all online banking and you're old like me and you take a hard copy check or some green paper to the bank and you give that to somebody and you ask them to deposit that in your account, what that is is an entrustment. You're giving your money to them and you're asking them to take care of it. They have control over it. That's trusting them. Those of you who have uh, young children. Whenever you take those children and you turn them over to a babysitter. That's an entrustment. Let me highly recommend to you that you first try the grandparents. Because they're the cheapest kind of child care you can find. But you ship those kids to, to your parents. And you hope that they're still living when you come back to pick them up. But I'm telling you, you parents, you young parents, grandparents, think about this. Grandparents love that so much. If you'd work it right, they would pay you to take care of your children. Really, think about that. Do that. That's how much we love our grandchildren. But it's an entrustment. We're turning the care of those children over to them. See, that's trust. When we trust in the Lord, that's what we're doing in our life. We're taking our life, and we're turning it over to the Lord. And we're saying, Lord, please. Here's my heart, Lord. Here's my life, Lord. Did you notice here how he describes, as he begs to the Father, how he describes the Lord in verse 3? You are my rock and my fortress. Therefore, for your name's sake, lead me and guide me. See what David is begging the Lord to do? Lord, help me. Lord, lead me. Guide me. See, he has an open mind and he has an open heart. And what he wants to do in his life in this very difficult time is he just wants to do what the Lord wants him to do. One of the most familiar passages in the Bible in Proverbs chapter 3 is a great commentary on what it means to trust the Lord. Trusting the Lord with all of your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. Stop and think about how much is in that passage. That passage tells us what we ought to do. What we ought to do is trust, and it tells us in whom we ought to trust. Trust in the Lord. It tells us how we ought to do that. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Then it explains what that means. Acknowledge Him. Let Him direct your paths. That's what we always need to do. When things are really good in our life and we're on a roll, you know what we ought to do? Trust in the Lord. When our life tanks and things are going bad, you know what we need to do? Trust in the Lord. And here's why. Because we don't know what to do. There's a reason why in the Bible we're often described as sheep. Sheep are about as dumb as any critter that exists. Sheep are really dependent. They need a lot of help. They smell bad too. And sometimes we do. There's a lot of similarities between sheep and us. We need help. When we're overwhelmed, our emotions are really high. When our emotions are really high, how good do we do at thinking straight? We don't. When our feeler is in overdrive, our thinker is a lot of times in park. And we have a really hard time sorting things out and making good decisions. Trust in The Lord. You know what the Lord wants you to do when things are a mess in your life? He wants you to do the same thing when things are great in your life. He wants you to praise Him. Be thankful for Him. Love Him and serve Him. That's what He wants of us all the time. But sometimes when we're overwhelmed, sometimes we can have a change of sentiment in regard to how we feel about God. We can struggle sometimes with what we think God isn't doing that he should do and then what he's not doing he should be doing and we think that we know better than God does about how he should engage or not engage in our life providentially the reality is we know little God knows everything and if we let him lead us and guide us and direct us when we're so overwhelmed in our life We're going to be a lot better off and a lot safer than when we say or act like, and I cringe when I hear people say this, I've got this. Have you ever thought about what a prideful statement that is? I've got this. I have a different way for us to look at it as children of God. God's got this. And I've got God. And things are going to be just fine. God's got this. I've got God. And this is going to be just fine. Now, I don't know how long it's going to take before it gets just fine. It may take a long time. It may take the rest of life. It may take an entrance into eternity. But eventually, it's going to be just fine. A second thing that we need to do when we're overwhelmed that David mentions here in this psalm is to remember his goodness. Despite the fact he was in such a troubled state in his life, look at what he says in verse 19. Oh, how great is your goodness, which you have laid up for those who fear you, which you have prepared for those who trust in you in the presence of the sons of men, You shall hide them in the secret place of your presence and from the plots of men. You shall keep them secretly in a pavilion from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for he has shown me his marvelous kindness in a strong city. One of the things that's an interesting study is when you look at a characteristic that is used to identify God. Often in scripture, there is something that pumps that characteristic up. There's an accompanying word that pumps that characteristic up. Did you look at the word goodness in verse 19? How great is your goodness. When he references the kindness of God down in verse 21, he references the marvelous kindness of God. Sometimes the badness in our life blinds us to the goodness of God and the good in our life it's a human struggle when we're living with it when it's all around us because we're being submerged in it or crushed by it it is hard sometimes to see anything positive in such a negative state of feeling state of mind and set of physical circumstances it's hard My children grew up in the age of Smurfs. Among the Smurfs, there was a very wise Papa Smurf. The Smurfs had an enemy, though, Gargamel and Azrael, ugliest cat I ever saw. Gargamel and Azrael were after the Smurfs all the time. Well, this one particular time, they got all the Smurfs together. They created this ring of fire around the Smurfs. And the blaze was just shooting up. And all the Smurfs were just going to be engulfed in that fire. Gargamel and Azrael had nailed them. And there was no way those Smurfs were going to survive. But then Papa Smurf said, Smurfs, listen to me. Smurfs, sing with me. I promise I won't sing to you. But I want to quote you the words of the song they sang. Goodness makes the badness go away. Goodness makes you happy every day. Badness cannot start if there's goodness in your heart. Goodness makes the badness go away. There's a cute melody that matches those lyrics. I'm not suggesting that focusing on the goodness of God or the blessings in your life will eradicate, literally eradicate, the badness that you're experiencing. But what I am suggesting is it will help you to deal with the negatives in your life. It'll help you to keep breathing. It'll help you to keep moving with baby step sequence. Because sometimes that's all you need to do. You know, I think sometimes when we are really dealing with a difficult time in our life, we shoot way too high. I really do not encourage people who are overwhelmed to cope. I don't even use that word. I just say survive. That's all you got to do. That's the minimum requirement of life. There are sometimes life is so hard, just the best thing to shoot for is just survive. One day at a time, when it's really bad, just one hour at a time, just till the next breath. That's all you have to do. After you string a bunch of survival days together, then maybe you can get to the point where you can start talking about coping. But you're never gonna learn to cope until you learn to survive. And eventually, you can learn to grow through your overwhelming experiences in your life. David also mentioned something else that's really difficult to do, to wait on him. Look at the end of this Psalm. Look at verse 23 and 24. Oh, love the Lord, all his saints, for the Lord preserves the faithful and full, fully repays the proud person. Be of good courage, and he will strengthen your heart, all you who hope in the Lord. Some translations say, wait on the Lord. There's a song, teach me, Lord, to wait. Oh, amen, that's what we need to do. We need to beg the Lord. Lord, teach me to wait. Because you know what? We don't do that very well, very well do we? we? don't. And by the way, wait is a verb. Wait doesn't necessarily indicate inactivity. Wait is a verb. Stop and think about if, if, uh, if you were having a normal Sunday and not having a potluck after this. And everybody r- runs to the restaurant. And you have a waiter who comes up. What do waiters do? Waiters serve. So what we need to keep doing when we're overwhelmed is we need to keep serving the lord we need to keep waiting and serving the lord because there are times in your life it's like you're in god's waiting room you know how frustrated we become at the doctors i don't go to a doctor's office anymore without taking a boatload of work with me because i want to constructively wait because when you get in the big room, it's hard telling how long they're going to call you before you go to the little room and you wait again. It's your second waiting phase. But we have a real hard time waiting, and we don't have any clue, do we, when we go, how long we're going to wait. There are sometimes in our lives we're in God's waiting room, and there's no telling how long that we may be there. It may be a few days. It may be weeks. It may be months, it could be years, it could be the rest of our lives. But you know, sometimes we just need to learn to be good waiters. People who wait or hope in the Lord are trusting in the Lord because what they're doing is they're looking at the future less fearfully because they know somebody is watching over them. And we have given our heart and our life over to Him, the one in whom we totally trust. And we find an ability to be at peace despite the storm, even though we don't have a clue when the storm is going to end. Sister Rosemary McKnight wrote a book called Those Who Wait on the Lord. Rosemary and I went to school together at Freed Hardeman University. We were freshmen the same year. A wonderful lady, she does some great writing and speaks at many ladies' days. One of the things that she mentions in her book is how that, if you have a cocoon, you don't want to open the cocoon before it's time, do you? That would not be good. If you have eggs in an incubator, you don't want to crack them before they're time, do you? That wouldn't be good. So there are times we're going to be in God's waiting room. And we may really struggle with that. But we need to keep trusting in the Lord in regard to our future. That's called waiting on him or hoping in him. I call it the Hobby Lobby verse in the Bible. It's the last verse of Isaiah 40, probably a very familiar verse. You can find it on home interior products at Hobby Lobby. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. It's good for us to look at the context of that verse. That's the end of a chapter. I'd like to go up to verse 28. Look at what precedes that verse. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak. To those who have no might, He increases strength. Even youths. Now see, this is the human condition. You know, even when the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. He says, he admits here in verse 29, that He can give power to the weak. Those who have no might, He can increase their strength because even youths, in verse 30, shall faint and be weary. And the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. The word renew there can also be translated change. How can you change change your strength? Well, your strength is weak. God's strength that's discussed in the previous verses is unlimited. So you renew your strength when you swap your pitiful weakness for his amazing strength. That's where you get the ability to take one more baby step. That's when you have the ability to breathe one more time. That's when you learn the ability to go another day. Because you know that you're in a difficult time in the Lord's waiting room. And at the right time, you'll be able to exit that waiting room. But boy, that is so hard because there are so many times in our life where we just feel like we are drowning. When we're prospering, also though, when we're suffering adversity, we need to trust in the Lord. We need to remember His goodness. He's always good no matter what our circumstances are, even if they're terrible. And we need to constantly be committed to waiting hoping in the Lord at my wife's funeral there was a song that was sung I have asked my children years ago I asked them to sing this song at my funeral but after I heard a few churches try to sing it I changed it and asked them to have somebody just read the words the lyrics of the song but I knew this fellow in the community who was a, a great music person. And though he had never sung this song before, I asked him if he'd learn this song and sing it solo at my wife's memorial service. And so he did. It's my favorite song. I quote this to myself periodically because I need to keep remembering this. Often I'm hindered on my way, burden so heavy I almost fall. Then I hear Jesus sweetly say, Heaven will surely be worth it all. Heaven will surely be worth it all. Worth all the trials that here befall. After this life, with all of its strife, heaven will surely be worth it all. I guarantee you that's true. But in our darkest times, we need to keep reminding ourselves of that. We're heaven-bound. Brothers and sisters, we are heaven-bound. That makes this life bearable. Because we have a Father in Heaven who loves us, who knows what's going on, and is willing to provide for our needs. It's a fantastic thing to be a Christian. If this morning you're overwhelmed and burdened with the sin problem, that's not necessary. You bear that burden unnecessarily if you're bearing that burden. Jesus died on the cross so that we could be unburdened of all the heartache, the pressure... And the heaviness of sin. This morning, if you need to come and confess your faith in Jesus, if you've truly developed a penitent heart about your past life of sin, and you'd like to be baptized into Christ, we invite you to come. We'd be more than happy to help you this morning. You come while we stand and while we sing.